Amen. Church, go ahead and grab your Bibles and uh, open up with me this morning to the book of Colossians. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 4 together. This morning is going to be the last week in this study we've been doing, going through the book of Colossians together. Um, our, our pattern over the last couple of years has been in between our book studies, we've turned our attention to the Psalms. We, we've looked at five or six Psalms at a time as we're slowly making our way through the Psalter. And so that's going to be the plan. Uh, starting next Sunday, we're going to turn back to Psalms. We'll be in Psalm 33 next week, and we'll be in the Psalms for a few weeks before we come to the Christmas Eve service. So uh, finishing up Colossians 4 this morning. And you might have noticed Last week was really the end of the meat of Colossians. So the, the last teaching portion of Colossians really ended with verse 6, where Paul was explaining how we as Christians should engage with those who are outside of the faith. And Paul talks about how we're to pray, and Paul talks about how we're to use our words, that we're to always speak with grace, with our words seasoned with salt, so we'll know how, how to answer different people. So that was the, the end of the meat of the letter. And and the way Paul's going to end the book is the way that Paul ends just about every book that he writes. He's going to end this letter with people, right? If you you know anything about Paul's letters, this is how Paul typically comes to the end of the letters that he writes. And while it it would be really easy just to skim through verses 7 and following, because it's just a long list, really, of names, hard to pronounce names, names that most of them don't mean anything to us. I think it's important that we not do that because when we read through these lists, each one of these lists is reminding us of something important about the life of Paul. Remember now, Paul had one of the sharpest theological minds that there has ever been. He was used by God to take these huge, grand truths about the Christian faith and to explain all of these truths in very simple, understandable ways. He kind of puts the cookies on the bottom shelf so common people like us can understand all of these great doctrines. So Paul had a very sharp theological mind. But it's important that you not think of Paul like he was just some kind of detached theologian, like Paul was sitting in some ivory tower somewhere uh, just writing theology textbooks to send out to churches. No, Paul was deeply connected to people. These churches that Paul ministered to, he did not hold these people at arm's length. Paul knew them. They knew Paul. These relationships mattered to Paul. And that's what all of these closing verses in Paul's letters remind us of. I mention regularly that, that how you think of Paul's life and ministry matters so much. The Apostle Paul was not just some rugged evangelist who traveled around all by himself and set up tents and preached evangelistic rallies in cities. That's not what Paul's ministry looked like at all. Paul always traveled with a team of people. An interesting exercise this week, if you don't have a devotion plan you're working through, would be just to go through the 13 letters that Paul wrote and read the last paragraph of all of his letters. And note all the different names Paul mentions. Paul had a massive web of Christian relationships in his life that mattered so much to him. And that's important for us to get because, listen, if Paul needed that, how much more do you and I need that? You you can make the argument, Paul was the greatest Christian there has ever been. Jesus personally appeared to Paul at his conversion. 
God delivered direct revelation through Paul. Paul, according to 2 Corinthians, actually had a vision of heaven. Paul wrote 13 of our New Testament letters, yet Paul needed other Christians in his life. And if Paul needed that, you and I would be unbelievably arrogant to think that we don't need that. And so the last paragraph of all these letters is such an important reminder that one of the key means of grace in our lives as believers are other believers. So, so one commentary uh, writer described it this way. He says, the last paragraph of all of Paul's letters are almost like a group photo. It's like as Paul's getting ready to mail these letters off, he wants everybody who's there serving with him to kind of gather together for a big group picture, except they didn't have cameras. And so what Paul does instead is he writes down the names of the people who were serving with him and the names of the people who are in his mind as he's writing. And this is a really easy time to remember how important relationships are. We've just come through Thanksgiving, right? What is it that makes Thanksgiving so great? Yeah, I mean, the meals are fantastic and there's all sorts of great food, but it's not, it's not the food. It's not even the day off from work. What makes it so great are the people, right? That, that's what makes life precious. That's, that's one of God's primary means of grace. And that was also true in the life of Paul. Okay, so we're going to see some of the people that God put around Paul's life in our text this morning. So if your Bible is open to Colossians 4, we're going to start in verse 7, and we'll read through the end of the book. So we'll read all the way through verse 18. So this is Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Colossians 4. Paul writes, Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I'm, I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They'll also make known to you all the things which are happening here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. With Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who's called Justice. These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They've proved to be a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you. Always laboring fervently for you in prayer. That you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you. And those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphus and the church that is in his house. Now when, the, when this epistle is read among you, see that it's read also in the church of the Laodiceans. And that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you've received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. This salutation by my own hand, Paul. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. Do you notice all the names that Paul lays out there? We can put them in three groups, so that's how we'll work through it this morning. Number one, there are those who are sent by Paul. Those who are sent by Paul. Look at the first one. Here's the first name, verse 7. Tychicus, 
a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord will tell you all the news about me. I'm sending him to you. This is why those who are sent, I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. So the very first name, this is one of the guys who was there in Rome serving with Paul, is this man named Tychicus. He, he shows up actually in five of the New Testament letters. He first shows up in Acts chapter 20 when Paul was doing ministry in Ephesus. And so uh, Tychicus was probably from Ephesus. He was probably converted during Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And from that point forward, in just about every place where Paul shows up, Tychicus is there, usually mentioned in a passing remark like this. He's, he's there, but almost always in the shadows. And here we are years after Paul's first ministry in Ephesus. Paul's now a prisoner in Rome. And Tychicus, this faithful friend, this faithful follower of Jesus, is still there serving with Paul, standing at Paul's side, still in the shadows. I was thinking this week, here we are in the um, end of football season, and Tychicus sort of served the, the offensive lineman's purpose in Paul's ministry. You know, offensive linemen don't usually get their names on tennis shoes, they don't get endorsement contracts, they, they don't do a whole lot of special interviews, um, but, but they're there doing this work that is so often unnoticed that's absolutely essential for things to move forward. That's, that's the sort of ministry that Tychicus had, always by Paul's side, all of the hardship that Paul endured, but none of the fanfare that Paul got. But faithfully serving with Paul, an unnamed, oftentimes unnamed friend. There, there's a book that um, C.T. Studd wrote. I should probably back up. If you're not familiar with C.T. Studd, it's one of, the, one of my favorite missionary stories. C.T. Studd was uh, a missionary sent out from England back in the 1800s. He was born to one of the wealthiest families in all of England. His dad had made a fortune in India and had retired back to England. So C.T. Studd was born into this very wealthy family and became an accomplished athlete in India. I mean, excuse me, in England. Um, by his teen years, he was widely recognized as the greatest cricket player in England. And this is in a time when cricket was the national sport. It was by far the most popular sport in all of England. So he was from a wealthy family. He was the best athlete in the most popular sport in the whole country. So he has fame, he has attention, he has money. Until God worked in his heart and he decided to walk away from all of that to serve on the mission field. And so he left in his early 20s to serve on the mission field and he did that for the rest of his life. And he was, he was serving with uh, Hudson Taylor's mission group, China Inland Mission. He was serving in China when he hit his 25th birthday. And according to his dad's will, it was on his 25th birthday that he was to get the largest portion of his inheritance. In, in modern dollars, it was almost equivalent to around $10 million. So he inherited around $10 million when he turned 25 years old serving on the mission field. And he gave every dime of it away. He used it to fund half a dozen different uh, mission organizations, continued serving on the mission field for the rest of his life. He, he didn't want wealth. He didn't want fame. He just wanted to do something with his life that mattered for the kingdom of God. Okay, back to what I started with. Well, later in C.T. Studd's life, he wrote a book about missions and evangelism, and it had a great title. The title of that book was Christ's Etcetera's. And his point was that there's Peter and Paul and John, and there's Calvin and Luther and, and Wycliffe, etc. 
And that's what we are. We're, we're Christ's etc. That, that's what we're called to be fine with. We don't have to have our name in lights. We don't have to be noticed. We're fine being the Tychicuses in the group. We're fine being the ones that nobody else notices, but who use, just use our lives serving Christ however we can. That, that was Tychicus. He was, he was one of Christ's etc. And did you notice how Paul even stacked up three titles just to make a point of the kind of man that Tychicus was? First, Paul refers to him as a beloved brother. Now, the reason that's striking is because, remember now, Paul is a Jew. Tychicus is a Gentile. And this is in a world where there are very hard lines between different ethnic groups. Now, of course, earlier in Colossians, Paul had made the point that now in Jesus, none of that matters. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither bond nor free. You're either in Christ or you're outside of Christ, and that's all that matters. Well, it's one thing to say that. It's another thing to actually live that. And Paul lived that. He viewed Tychicus, he loved Tychicus like he was his own brother. The second title that Paul uses for Tychicus, he calls him a faithful minister. The word minister there is just the word for servant. Tychicus was a servant. You know, really, there, there's no better word you could be described as in the Christian life than that word. We read Philippians chapter 2 earlier, and how does Paul describe Jesus in Philippians 2? He didn't just come and take on flesh, but he come and came and made himself a servant. And then what did Jesus say to us? Well, he said, he who wants to be great among you, let him, become your, let him become your servant. Greatness in the world is about climbing up the ladder. It's, it's about climbing above everybody else. But greatness in the kingdom of God is about lowering yourself beneath. To become a servant of everyone. Paul recognized Tychicus as a servant, but not just any kind of servant. There's an important adjective in front of that. What kind of servant was Tychicus? He was a faithful servant. That means he was dependable. He's a reliable servant. He's a loyal servant. And the evidence of that is Paul has probably three letters that he's wanting delivered to Asia Minor, and he puts those letters in the hands of of Tychicus. And he's the man who's going to deliver these letters from Paul. And it's hard, it's hard to even put into words in our day what an unbelievably hard assignment Tychicus was being given here. To go from Rome to Colossae was a thousand mile journey. Now imagine in a day when there's no planes and trains and cars, what it's like to travel a thousand miles. To, to deliver these letters, Tychicus is going to have to walk by foot across Italy. Then he's going to have to sail across the Adriatic Sea. Then he's going to have to walk across Greece. Then he's going to have to find another ship and sail across the Aegean Sea. And then once he gets to Asia Minor, he's going to have to walk another hundred miles inland just to get to Colossae. And Paul trusted Tychicus to do this because he was a reliable servant. What a wonderful way to be described. That's one of the men God had put in his life. But Tychicus wasn't making this trip back to Colossae alone. Did you notice who he said was going to be with him? Back to Colossians 4, verse 9. He's going to be traveling with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother. Now, we've talked about him so much that hopefully by now you remember that name. Do you remember who Onesimus was? Onesimus was actually from Colossae, and Onesimus was an actual slave. He, he was owned by this man named Philemon. Philemon, 
the church of Colossae met in Philemon's home. And from, from what we read in the book of Philemon, um, Onesimus was a, a pretty lousy person. A good-for-nothing sort of guy who stole from Philemon and ended up running away. And if you, if you were a runaway slave, what you wanted to do was you wanted to disappear. Well, there was no better place to disappear than by going to the city of Rome. Over a million people lived in Rome. It was one of the biggest cities of the day. So it was easy to get into Rome and just disappear in the mass of people. Nobody would ever find him, but God found him. And in God's mysterious providence, God had Onesimus, this runaway slave, he had his path cross with Paul's path, who was now in Rome as a prisoner. And through Paul's ministry, Onesimus became a believer. He was converted. And it became clear to Onesimus that one of the things he needed to do was make things right with Philemon. As a Christian, Philemon was now his brother. So he felt like he needed to go back to Colossae and reconcile with Philemon, which is, that's a really hard task because runaway slaves in the Roman Empire could be executed. So for him to go back to Colossae, he's putting his neck on the line with the possibility of execution, but this is what's right, and so he's making the trip back. And so Paul is writing this letter, and with this letter, he writes the book of Philemon to vouch for Onesimus to Philemon. To let them know they're not just to receive Onesimus back as a slave. They're to welcome Onesimus in as a brother in Christ. Paul even uses that language. Did you notice what he calls Onesimus here? He calls him, verse 9, a faithful and beloved brother. Now, that is this runaway slave who's trying to be reconciled back to this believer back in Colossae. It is an unbelievably messy situation that God is bringing something good out of. Isn't this one of the, the themes that keeps getting repeated in the Bible, keeps getting repeated in the church? God makes something out of messes. You, you get that over and over again. Um, Edith Schaefer, Francis Schaefer's wife, told a story to illustrate this. If you're not familiar with the Schaefer's, by the way, the Schaefer's were a missionary couple in Europe who were trying to influence, trying to share the gospel with young people in Europe, this is largely in the 1960s, who, who had been turned upside down by the hippie culture and all the changing times of that day. And so the way they did that is they, they just opened up their home, lots of times to hitchhikers traveling across Europe, to folks who were struggling. They just opened up their home for people to come in who were confused, looking for answers. That they, named, they named their place uh, Labrie, which Labrie is the French word for shelter. There's still a, La, a Labrie ministry today. And their goal was for their home to become a kind of spiritual shelter where they would just use, use hospitality, welcome in anybody who was struggling, anybody who was searching, give them a seat at their table, even let them stay in their house. They would answer their questions. They would share the gospel. They would make disciples. And, and it absolutely exploded. They would have dozens and dozens of people on a regular basis who were coming into their home and sitting at their table and, and staying in their house. Scores of people came to know Christ through that ministry. Well, you can imagine what it was like every day cooking meals when you didn't know from day to day how many people might show up and they had a very limited budget. And so Edith Schaefer tells the story that one day there was a, a young lady who was helping her prepare a meal for what had turned into a very large crowd that had showed up at their house that night. 
And this young lady was supposed to be cooking. I think she was making the bread for the meal or something like that. And she ended up messing up the recipe. And it ended up being just this amorphous goo ball. It was just a mess of nothing. It was the sort of thing, normally you would just throw it out and start over again. But they didn't have the budget to throw it out and start over again. They had to do something with it. And so Edith Schaefer tells how she came to the girl and she got very detailed instructions about exactly what the girl had put into this mess that she had made. And she wrote everything out, and then she went to her cupboard and grabbed a few ingredients and came back and started added, adding stuff to this mess that this girl had come up with and ended up turning this mess into, into homemade noodles for the night. And her husband, Francis, would later say it was the best homemade noodles that he had ever had. And it was this, she used it as an illustration. This is what God does. God has a way of taking messes and turning them into something useful. And I would just say as a word of encouragement, that's a word of encouragement for us, right? That means you are not doomed to some wrecked, useless life because you've made a mess of things. Failures in your life, sin in your life does not doom you because we have a Savior, we sang about it earlier, who went to the cross to take the punishment for our sin who went to the cross bearing the burden for that so that in Christ now something useful can be made out of the most messy situations imaginable. That's the life of Onesimus. So you have Onesimus and Tychicus who are being sent by Paul. Men who have been saved under Paul's ministry, ministered alongside of Paul. Now they're being sent back to Colossae. That's the first group. Here's the second group. Next there are those serving with Paul. There are some who are going to stay there with Paul in Rome. Paul mentions six more names now. Three Jews and three Gentiles. Look at verses 10 and 11. Paul says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who's called Justice. These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They've proved to be a comfort to me. Now, you can almost hear the, the angst in Paul's words when he says, these are the only workers I have with me who are of the circumcision. That means these were the only Jewish believers who were there serving alongside of Paul. And that was such a difficult thing for Paul because Paul longed to see a revival among the Jews. He wanted to see Jews hear the gospel and come to Christ in faith, but he saw very little fruit among among the Jews. He saw a tremendous amount of fruit among the Gentiles. But here are three Jewish men who were there serving with him. First, Paul mentions Aristarchus. We're told elsewhere that Aristarchus was from Thessalonica, and he had been traveling with Paul for quite a while by this point. You'll notice here that Paul refers to him as my fellow prisoner. And what's interesting is there's, there's no evidence that Aristarchus was, was ever arrested. And what I mean is, Aristarchus wasn't Paul's fellow prisoner because the Romans had made him a prisoner. He was Paul's fellow prisoner because his love for Paul had made him a prisoner. His love for Christ had made him a prisoner. What seems to have happened is when Paul was arrested and shipped off to Rome, Aristarchus voluntarily took the trip with him. When Paul was held under house arrest, chained to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day, Aristarchus voluntarily entered into this situation with Paul. 
and stood with Paul as his fellow prisoner. He wasn't there because he had to be. He was there because he chose to be. And isn't it hard to make it through life with, without people like that? I don't know how it works in your life. Um, when something bad happens to you individually, you don't have a choice but to go through it, right? You're sort of forced into it. But to have somebody who comes along and voluntarily steps into it with you, to have somebody who comes along and voluntarily chooses to shoulder the load with you, to bear the burden with you, is one of God's greatest gifts. And that's what Aristarchus had been for Paul. He had joined himself in with Paul as his fellow prisoner. And then Paul mentions a name that you might be familiar with. He mentions Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. We could spend a whole sermon on Mark. This is the man, of course, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Um, all the evidence in the New Testament would point to Mark being raised by a, a mother who was wealthy. We know from Acts that early believers in Jerusalem would meet in the home of Mark's mother. You can make a very strong argument that the, the Last Supper, the upper room that the Last Supper was held in, likely belonged to Mark's mother. So, so Mark was right there from the very beginning, likely around Jesus, likely around the apostles. The cousin of Barnabas, one of the great encouragers. And when Paul and Barnabas were being sent out, by the church of Antioch on their very first mission trip, they decided to take Mark with them. Mark was younger. It would be so helpful to have an extra set of hands, somebody else to get the water and prepare the meals and be there with them. And so off Mark went with Paul and Barnabas. But almost as soon as the trip began, John Mark bailed out. It was harder than what he anticipated. It was more than he bargained for. And so Mark left Paul and Barnabas high and dry. Well, fast forward a few years, when Paul and Barnabas are getting ready to go out on their second mission trip. And Barnabas comes to Paul and says, hey, I'd like to give Mark another chance. And what does Paul say? Paul's not hearing it. He doesn't trust Mark anymore. Mark was a quitter. He didn't want Mark to be part of their mission team. It was so contentious, Paul and Barnabas parted ways because of John Mark. So John Mark's ministry started on very shaky ground. But here we are in Colossians years later, and we find Mark there serving alongside of Paul. If you jump to the end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy chapter 4, again, we find Mark mentioned at the end of Paul's life, Paul's asking for Mark to come because he found Mark to be useful for ministry. So what, what happens how does this change happen in Mark's life? Well, one of the things that happened is Mark, somewhere along the line, was taken in by the Apostle Peter. We know that because in Peter's writings, 1 Peter chapter 5, we find out that Mark was with Peter. Uh, Peter actually refers to Mark as his son. So somewhere along the line, Peter began to disciple Mark. That's a great picture. Because if there was anybody who understood the grace of God in the face of failure, it was Peter, right? This is a man who had failed God notably and catastrophically and yet had been restored by Christ. And it seems like it was under the, the tutelage, under the helping hand of Peter, that Mark, who starts off on such shaky ground, Mark gets his feet underneath him. Mark is restored and becomes useful in ministry. 
And let me just make, let, let me make two quick application points about Mark. Here's the first one. You know, one of the things that the cross promises us is it promises us new beginnings. In other words, the cross gives us the assurance that in Christ, we are not locked in by past sins and failures. In Christ, at the cross, there's forgiveness of sins. In Christ, at the cross, there's a power that changes us. Okay, so, so the message of the gospel is that through Christ, we're promised a changed life. We're, we're promised a clean slate before God. We're promised a fresh start. Okay, so that's, that's encouraging. That's one lesson from Mark's life. The other lesson from Mark's life, I mentioned this to our men when we were studying 2 Timothy 4, is Mark's story should remind us that as Christians, we need to make sure we leave room for people like John Mark in our lives. And what I mean by that is we need to, we need to leave room for people who might have failed us in the past, but who God can restore. Do you leave room for John Mark's or do you, I'll say it a different way, all of us, I think, can have a tendency with other people to sort of operate on a one-strike-and-you're-out basis. Like, you fail me once, you fail in ministry once, you fail doing this, you, and I'm done with you and I write you off once and for all. The reason we can't do that with other people is because God doesn't do that with us. So we need to make sure we, we leave room for folks who might have failed, who might have failed us, who might have fallen, but who God shows grace to and can become something different who can be restored, can become something better than what they were. And that's the story of Mark. And then finally, the last Jewish friend who was there with him is this man named Jesus. Jesus was a very common name in this day. It's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew name Joshua. And there was one Jesus they were focused on, so they called this man Justice. And that's really all we know about him. All we get is his name. We just know this is a man who was faithfully serving alongside of Paul. And then we get three Gentile names, starting in verse 12. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you. And those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. So there's the three Gentiles who were there with Paul. You have Epaphras, you have Luke, and you have Demas. You, you've seen the name Epaphras before. We found out in chapter 1 that Epaphras was the man who first preached the gospel in Colossae. Paul had never been to this city himself. But Epaphras at some point has been converted under Paul's ministry. And Epaphras went back home with the gospel. He wants to see his hometown come to Christ, hear the gospel, and when this church is formed in the city of Colossae, Epaphras becomes the pastor of the church. He begins ministering to this little flock of believers as false teachers begin to creep into this area. Epaphras is trying to guard the church against that. Until finally he decides that he needs help. He needs counsel. And so he leaves Colossae, Going, going in the other direction as Tychicus, and he makes the thousand-mile journey all the way over to Rome to get help from Paul. He doesn't want this church to be devoured by wolves, so his love for the church compels him to go see Paul to figure out how he can best protect this congregation. And what does Paul point out about Epaphras? 
He tells them that he is always laboring fervently for you in prayers. That phrase, laboring fervently, it comes from the Greek word that we get our English word agonize from. That's how Paul is describing Epaphras' prayers. Epaphras was agonizing for this church in his prayer. He was like, um, he was like Jacob. He was wrestling with God. He was not going to let go until God blessed this flock. What was he praying for? Paul's reporting to the church how their pastor was praying. What was he praying for? It's interesting. What he prays for, what Paul reports here, is very similar to what Paul said he was praying for back in Colossians 1. So Paul said earlier that he was praying that all of these people would come to full maturity in Christ. And that's the same thing that Epaphras was praying for. You know, one, one of the things it reminds you of, it reminds us, Epaphras' prayers reflecting Paul's prayers, reminds us of one of the benefits of praying with other Christians. Right? We talk a lot about how, yes, we need to pray individually. That's important. But so many of the examples of prayer you find in the New Testament are actually Christians praying together. And one of the added benefits of praying with other Christians is we learn how to pray. You start praying with other Christians and you'll find yourself adopting some of their language. Right? You, you only pray by yourself and you'll often fall into a little rut where you say the same things and repeat the same phrases. So scripture informs and gets us out of that rut. But another thing God gives us are the prayers of other believers. As we pray with other folks who are following the Lord, we hear things and think, man, that's a great thing. I, I should be praying that way. I should be asking God for that. So Epaphras' prayers reflect what Paul was praying. And he prays specifically that they would stand perfect. That word perfect means mature. So he's praying that they'll stand. Okay, that their feet will be nailed to the ground. That they won't be tossed around by all the wind of false doctrine that was blowing through this area. And he prays that they'll grow into maturity. And Paul adds that Epaphras had a great zeal, not only for the believers in Colossae, but also for those in Hierapolis and those in Laodicea. Remember that this was a little river valley, and there were three sister cities. These are the three cities. Colossae, Hierapolis, and Laodicea were all 10 or 12 miles from each other. Think of it like Waycross, Blackshear, and Hoboken maybe. And, and Epaphras' heart was he wanted to see the churches in all of these cities grow. So he loved his little congregation in Colossae. He's burdened for his congregation. But he's also praying for these other congregations. And, and that in and of itself is a helpful reminder. I, I can't say this enough, church. Listen, we don't have a corner on the market of the gospel here, right? We understand that. We're not the only church who loves the Lord. We're not the only congregation who's trying to be faithful with the gospel. There are other groups of churches around our area who are looking to serve the Lord, who are looking to be faithful with the gospel, and we should want and pray for God to bless those congregations too. And he's praying for them here. He has a great zeal for all of these groups. And then he mentions, of course, Luke, the beloved physician. Luke. Um, Luke joins in with Paul, if you go through Acts, on his second missionary journey. And think of how valuable Luke was. Because what was Paul constantly facing? He was beaten almost to the point of death over and over and over again. At one point, he was stoned and left for dead. So can you imagine how valuable it was to have a physician 
as part of Paul's ministry team. To have someone traveling with Paul who could care for Paul. And Luke seems to have been a highly intelligent individual. Um, The two, uh, I mentioned Paul writes 13 of the 27 letters. Luke only writes two of the New Testament books, but his word total equals almost half of the New Testament. He writes the Gospel of Luke, which is by far the longest gospel. He writes the book of Acts. He's a very detailed historian, a very efficient, very good writer. And so you never read of Luke preaching any sermons in Acts or in Paul's letters. But what you do find is Luke used the skills he had as a physician and the skills he had as a writer to serve God's people and to serve the work of the gospel. Listen, the cause of Christ needs a million Lukes. It it doesn't just take people to lead ministry teams and to preach sermons. You you might have a skill set you picked up through the career that you have or a skill set that you picked up through the course of life that God intends to use those skills in a way that's going to bless his church and serve the cause of Christ and help the furtherance of the gospel. That's Luke. Luke was a faithful follower of Jesus who used the skills that he had in a way that mattered for the kingdom of God. There's Luke, the beloved physician, and then the, the most tragic name on the list is the last one among the Gentiles. He mentions Demas. You know, for a while, Demas was apparently a faithful ministry partner of Paul's. Paul mentions Demas in a couple of his letters as serving there alongside of him. But do you remember what ends up happening with Demas? The very last report we get of Demas comes in 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is Paul's last will and testament, the last letter we have from Paul. And listen to what he says. This is 2 Timothy 4 verse 10. Paul says, For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. What had Demas done? He had forsaken. And the word that Paul uses there means to utterly abandon. Demas had abandoned Paul. Demas had abandoned the ministry. And apparently Demas had even abandoned the faith. Why had he abandoned the faith? Paul tells us, he says, because he loved the present world. You know, following Jesus means that we're willing to make sacrifices in the present world because we know that there's a world to come. Following Jesus means that we're, we're willing to deny ourselves and take up our crosses to go after him. But Demas reached a point where he believed that this world was more appealing than anything that Jesus could offer. And so Demas walked away. Every time you read the name Demas in the New Testament, it it should make your spine tingle. Because Demas is this warning that it's possible for someone to profess faith in Christ. It's possible for someone to be neck deep involved in ministry and walk away, not persevere. That's the story of Demas. Demas forsook Paul. He forsook the ministry. He forsook the faith. And I would add, I mentioned earlier how uh, one of the things you get in Paul is about the relationships in Paul's life and how important relationships were. Well, the story of Demas reminds us that if you live that sort of life where you open yourself up and pursue relationships and invest in other people, you're also opening yourself up to times when you're going to be hurt by it. 
That there'll be times where, where you might have spent years serving alongside of somebody or investing in the spiritual walk of somebody and they end up walking away. Listen, there is nothing more heartbreaking in Christian life than having someone who you thought was by your side who ends up departing from the faith. But following Christ the way Paul calls us to puts us in situations like that. Demas is a tragic story. Now, I would say one more thing about Demas. I wonder if we don't even get a hint here that Paul felt like something was off track with Demas. Because have you noticed with so many of the other names he's mentioned, he's added some compliment. There's Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner. There is, uh, there's Tychicus, my beloved brother. There's Luke, the faithful physician. He doesn't say anything like that with Demas. He just says, and Demas. And I wonder if Paul doesn't already notice something that doesn't seem quite right with him here. If he doesn't sense a drifting happening in Demas's heart. There's one more group. We'll be done. Next, Paul mentions those around Colossae. Look at verse 15. Paul says, Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphus and the church that is in his house. So now he's sending greetings to the people he's writing to. And he sends a special greeting to the church in Laodicea and apparently... That church met in the home of this man named Nymphus. And Paul adds in verse 16, Now when this epistle is read among you, see that it's read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So Paul wants there to be a letter exchange. He's writing this letter to the Colossians. He wants them to hand it off to the Laodiceans when they're done. And he says, you need to get the letter that they have. And there's all kinds of possibilities about what that is. I think the, the most likely scenario is the letter the Laodiceans had was Ephesians. Ephesians wasn't written to a particular congregation. It was written as a circular letter to be rotated through the churches of Asia Minor. And so the, the most likely scenario is they had Ephesians. The church of Colossae has Colossians. And Paul's encouraging them to exchange these letters. And then verse 17. Here's another name. And say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you've received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. Now, we're not going to read it now, but Archippus is also mentioned in the book of Philemon. And what we find out there is Archippus was Philemon's son. He's a younger man, and apparently when Epaphras left to go to Rome, some of the responsibilities of caring for the congregation fell to Archippus. Well, Archippus has now been thrust into a very challenging situation. False teaching is coming in. The church is disturbed and he's being called to lead and protect and provide and care for this group of believers. And he's being tempted to back away from that. And it's like Paul is saying to Archippus, yes, I know it's hard. Yes, I know it's challenging, but it's worth it. Don't back away from the work God's called you to. Don't be a Demas, in other words. Fulfill the ministry that God's placed in front of you. And then verse 18. Paul writes, This salutation by my own hand, Paul. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. So the way Paul would write letters is he would actually dictate the letter. And then somebody who was a little more skilled with a pen would write out the letter as Paul dictated it. You're, you're writing on parchment, which was very expensive. And so you wanted someone who could write well and write in small enough letters that you could fit a lot on this one sheet of parchment. 
So Paul would dictate, somebody else would write. But almost always when Paul came to the end of his letters, he would take the pen in his own hand. And he would write the closing farewell. And it was a way of personalizing the letter. Like, you know, there's a difference between receiving an email and receiving a, receiving a handwritten card from somebody. So taking the pen in his own hand was a way of making it personal. And it was also a way of authenticating the letter. They would be able to look at Apparently Paul had very identifiable handwriting. And so they could look at this letter. They could notice at the bottom, that's Paul's handwriting. No missing it. And so they would know that this letter was from Paul. And so Paul, in his own hand, says, remember my chains. Now what he's saying there is, pray for me. Remember my chains in prayer. Pray for me during my imprisonment. Not only was this church needing help from Paul, Paul was needing help from this church. And then he closes in the way that he closes just about every one of his letters. Where he says, grace be with you. If, if you've read Paul's letters at all, you know that Paul normally bookended his letters with grace. He would start his letters by saying grace to you. And then he would end his letters by saying grace with you. And the point seems to be that from beginning to end, the Christian life is dependent on grace. You know, grace grace means God in Christ doesn't treat us according to what we deserve. That's grace. So when you turn to Christ in faith, you receive forgiveness you don't deserve. You receive help you don't deserve. You receive righteousness that you don't deserve. And so Paul, Paul structures his letters in such a way to remind us from the very first step of the Christian life to the very last step of the Christian life. It's not about our performance. It's not about our goodness. It is all about the grace of God. God in Christ shows us profound grace. And the point of this last paragraph is that one of the main means of grace into our lives as Christians is the help that we get from other Christians. Brothers and sisters, make sure you get this. The Christian life is not just about Jesus and me. When God saved you, he made you part of a body. And you and I need the other body parts. When God saved you, he made you part of a family. And you and I need the other family members. We need brothers and sisters around us who know us and who love us and who help us and who pray for us and who encourage us and who correct us and who serve us. We need that. So, so if you have a naturally outgoing, extroverted, gregarious kind of personality, what this means for you is you need to make sure you're intentional with those relationships. Because what the Bible calls us to isn't just relationships. We need relationships with a spiritual bent to them. We, we need relationships where we're actually talking about things that matter. We're needing relationships where there are folks who I bear my heart to, who know my struggles, who know how I can be praying and how they can be praying. We need meaningful relationships. And then if you're at the other side of the personality spectrum, Maybe you're a little bit more introverted, where you're perfectly fine being by yourself. Well, passages like this would remind you, you're going to have to push past that. that. Now, that doesn't mean you have to become an extrovert. But it does mean you can't let yourself stay in your little bubble. You just, you just can't. 
if you let yourself withdraw to your little personal private cocoon, you're going to be cutting yourself off from one of God's primary means of grace in your life. God designs you not only as a person, God designs you as a Christian so that you desperately need the help of other Christians. And God designed the Christians around you so they desperately need help from you. You do realize, don't you, that if Paul, the greatest Christian who ever lived, needed relationships like that, you realize how arrogant it would be for me to act like I don't need relationships like that? You realize how arrogant it would be for me to act like, you know what, I think I'm strong enough on my own to make it. I'm not. And neither are you. So if, if there was a book being written about your life, and it was ending the same way Paul ends this. It was ending listing out the names of people you had been investing in. It was listing out the names of people who were spiritually investing in you. What would the list look like? Would your name show up on any of the lists for the other Christians in this room? Are there any other folks whose names would go on your list? Or would it just end with love, your name? If that's how you're living the Christian life, you have missed what God's called us to as a church. Let me just end with Solomon's words. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Listen to how Solomon puts it. Ecclesiastes 4, starting in verse 9, he writes, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But... Get this next word. This is a word of doom. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they'll keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? You, you go through seasons of life that are like winter where you're freezing cold spiritually. You know what you desperately need in those times? You need the warmth that comes from other believers. Verse 12. Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. The point of that last phrase is, the point isn't just you need two. The point is the more the merrier. The more folks you can have in your life who are genuinely seeking to follow Christ, who you can weave into your life, the better shape you're in as a Christian. Right? We want to avoid, by God's grace, the path of Demas. Don't turn away. Don't abandon. Don't forsake the faith. Don't let your heart become cold. And the, one of the key preventatives God gives us for that is the body of believers. Make sure you are taking the steps God calls for to weave your life together with other believers. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. I'm going to give you a few minutes just to go to the Lord yourself in your seat. And I wonder what your list of names would look like. Are there people who you could identify who are there by your side spiritually, who know you, who you're confident are praying for you, who you are praying for, who are serving together, who are there to encourage you and there to correct you and there to help you? If you're not, make it your prayer now that God would help you look for that, have eyes open to that, pursue that. I mentioned earlier the Schaefers. What a great picture of, of how to do that. They live with an open door and an open table to welcome in folks so that their lives would be open. So 
Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. I'll give you a few minutes just to seek the Lord in your seat. Pray for this. Pray for this in your life. Pray for this in our church. And then I'll come up and close this.